Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 34. And uh, I'm also going to need you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Psalm 34 and 1 Samuel chapter 21. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like you were losing your mind? Let me ask it a different way. How many of you have ever felt, you don't again have to raise your hands, as though you were in a deep, deep spiritual depression? where nothing seems to matter as far as your faith is concerned. I think we've all, at one point or another, to a varying degrees, we have all been at that point at one stage or another in our lives. As we continue our study in the Psalms, as I talk about this development of a spiritual legacy, values that we want to teach our children, I've selected as our second psalm in the series, Psalm 34. This is one of my, if not the favorite psalm of mine, as uh, I believe it speaks to the human condition, probably as well as any of the other psalms do. Now, you need to understand when we study the psalms, there are a variety of genres, literary genres that make up the psalms. We have laments. We have uh, songs of praise. We have messianic psalms. We have uh, psalms of thanksgiving. We have, and there's a whole variety of different psalms that help us to understand what went into the makeup of that particular psalm. Uh, most, in most cases, the psalms begin with some sort of personal experience. Somebody was experiencing some pain or some heartache or some difficulty or some great victory and they pen the psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And then the community or the nation, the, the people of God, picked that psalm up and it became part of corporate worship. Well, when we read Psalm 34, it is what we refer to as a thanksgiving psalm. Now, there are a variety of thanksgiving psalms, but they all have one thing in common. They all have a, a similar structure of how the psalm is constructed. All of them reflect the condition of the human heart or the nation as one is engaged by God or one engages God. None of them is more profound than Psalm 34. As I said, this is a Thanksgiving Psalm and it develops according to a certain structure. All the Thanksgiving Psalms do. The first part of the structure is the introduction where the psalmist, the writer, states his intent. His intent is to give thanks. His intent is to praise God. He lets that be known from the very beginning. If you look at Psalm 34, you'll see that in verse 1 it says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will be upon my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You see, this is David's intent to demonstrate thanks for something that happened in his life 
that he also wants you to learn how you can develop the same kind of thanksgiving spirit when something happens in your life. Now, I didn't skip over the superscription. I just started with verse 1, but you'll notice there is a superscription there that says that this psalm was framed by David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. Now, that gives us the background as to the backdrop, if you will, as to why David penned this psalm. We'll talk about that in a moment. Secondly, in a Thanksgiving psalm, there is a story to be told, a narrative, a narrative that describes the crisis so that others can experience the power of the writer's testimony. You'll notice in verse four, the distress. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. And then he offers the prayer. This is my, one of my favorite verses. Underline this in your Bible. You're going to need this verse someday. This poor man cried or called, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then he speaks of the deliverance. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. He's already expressed his intent to praise God, to express thanks. He tells us of the crisis and how he was delivered from the crisis. And then thirdly, all the Thanksgiving Psalms renew the commitment to be a testimony. They renew their vow of praise. They renew their desire that this experience in their life would become a testimony of instruction to others, especially to their children. You'll find that in verses 10 through 22. Just mark that for now. I'm not going to be speaking on that part as I cover this Psalm but it is designed for instructive purposes. It is designed to teach. In other words, what happened to me is filtered through my life so that I might teach you. What happens to you is filtered through your life so that you might teach others. What happened to David was filtered through his life so that he might be a testimony to others. And so there's the instruction. All of the Thanksgiving Psalms have those three parts. That's how you know they're Thanksgiving Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 34. Let's talk, first of all, about the crisis in David's life. You know, part of what happened to David can be explained very simply this way. All of us have gone through this at one time or another. David, like us, developed spiritual amnesia. He forgot the blessings of God in his life. And it didn't take him long to do it. It didn't take David long to forget the power of God in his life, the faithfulness of God in his life, the blessings of God in his life. And do you know when this usually happens to us? In one of two places, either on the heels of some great spiritual victory or as we are ready to 
enter into some great spiritual victory. Just before or just after we have or experience some spiritual experience that gives us victory, that is when we are most likely to develop spiritual amnesia. In David's case, it didn't take long. On the heels of a great, great victory that all of you know about, the smallest child has heard the story of David and Goliath. When he writes this psalm, and I'll tell you where he was in just a moment, when he writes this psalm, he was on the heels of a victory that he had seen where the power of God was unleashed through a slingshot as he felled the giant Goliath. Can you imagine any more powerful of a victory than that? Can you imagine that your brothers and the whole army, the whole nation of Israel, cowered in fear of, of this giant? He came out and he mocked the God of Israel. And they cowered in shame and fear. It was David, emboldened by the faith of God, emboldened by the courage of Christ, where he stepped out and dared the giant to defy the God of Israel. And he felled him with the stone. We all know that story. You got to keep in mind when David wrote this psalm, he was still a young man. He was still on the heels of that great victory. But you see, God would prepare him for what was to follow. One cannot help but see the hand of God's mercy in David's life. Here is the man who faced down the giant from whom the entire Israeli army had cowered. David alone, by the power of God, slew the giant, and he knew it was in the power of the Lord. He knew where his strength came from, and he was appalled at the faithlessness of everyone else. All of us know that story. But now let's go to the sequel. Let's follow his steps right after he slays the giant. And this is what forms the canvas upon which Psalm 34 is painted. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 21. And let's paint the picture to give you the backdrop. 1 Samuel 21, when David realized that Saul was out for his life, after he slew the giant, the women are dancing in the streets, saying Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And the jealousy and the rage of, of Saul continued to build. And it says that that day, verse 10, 1 Samuel 21, 10, that day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, don't get confused when you see in the superscription that he went to Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech is just a title like, like Caesar or Pharaoh, but Achish was the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? Well, he wasn't the king of the land. Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. Now David is uncovered. Everyone knows the same man that slew Goliath is now in, is in Goliath's hometown. The same man who felled him with a stone is right there in his hometown. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Isn't that amazing? 
that just a few days before, he wasn't afraid of the biggest giant that Achish had. But now he's afraid of Achish. Verse 13, so he pretended to be insane. I want you to watch the spiral in this man's life. He pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gates and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. Why are you bringing him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? Chapter headings are not inspired. Keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Now, a lot happens in the interim. A lot has to be filtered through between the lines here. It is usually, as I said, on the heels of some great spiritual victory that we are most prone to an assault, an all-out assault on the soul by the enemy of our souls. In a sermon I preached some time ago on this particular passage in David's life, I entitled that message, Regaining Your Spiritual Compass, because you see, David had lost his. In the previous chapter of 1 Samuel, let me paint the picture for you. David flees to Nioth, which was where the seminary of the prophets was. And he was escaping there because of the murderous plot of Saul to kill him. In the process of that flight to Naoth, he loses his soul friend, Jonathan. He loses his position of power and respect. He loses even his marriage. Now he is going to lose his spiritual mentor, Samuel. And there's an intriguing series of divine invasions at Naoth as God strikes down the hitmen who were there to kill him from Saul. And he even causes those enemies of, of David to bow down and worship God. Had he waited with Samuel, had he waited for a word from the Lord from Samuel, had he waited patiently and not taken matters into his own hands, the same God who had already told him he would not die and that he would become the king would have spoken to him again. You see, God told David, you will not die at the hands of Saul. You will become the king. And what does David do? He runs for his life. He conjures up a scheme with his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, does not believe that his father is out to kill David. He's not convinced that his father is the madman that David says he is. So there's a feast day, a celebration taking place, and David is absent from the feast. Now Saul threw this party at the feast because he was expecting David to come. And when David would come, he was going to have him assassinated. David sensed that Saul was out to kill him and refused to come to the feast. But rather than trust God, he told a lie. He conjured up a lie. 
And not only that, he concocted a scheme. He says to Jonathan, you go in and talk to your dad. And you sense from him whether or not he's out to kill me. And if you sense that I'm in danger, we'll have a prearranged signal. And I'll be watching from the distance. You signal me if you think he's going to kill me, and I'll run for my life. You signal me if he's going to be kind to me, and I'll come in. Jonathan says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. I don't believe my dad is out to kill you. But he agrees because he's a friend. And Jonathan goes in and becomes a companion to David's lie. Jonathan became convinced that Saul was out to kill him when Jonathan mentioned David's name and his father took a spear and threw it at him and almost impaled him against the wall. I guess he was convinced. And their prearranged signal went out and David fled again for his life because he knew now that Saul was obsessed with killing him. He warns David, David runs, and David's needs are now quite critical. He would dare not travel by day because he would be seen by Saul. And he dared not travel by night because it was dangerous to travel by night. There was a little town called Nob about an hour southeast of Gibeah where Saul lived. It was there where the tabernacle was erected, the precursor to the temple. After David left Jonathan, he laid in hiding all night long. He appears the next day before the high priest, Ahimelech, in Nob. Ahimelech sees him coming and fears for his own life because he knew there were wanted posters all over the place. Ahimelech is celebrating the, the Sabbath. He has the 12 loaves of bread laid out there that were, that were the, the pay, if you will, for his services. David comes in and he says, do you have any food? And by consulting or by engaging Ahimelech, he is now endangering Ahimelech's life and his own son Abiathar. He says, do you have anything to eat here? He says, well, I've only got these 12 loaves of bread, but they're for temple use and temple use only. But he convinces Ahimelech to give him the bread. He appears before Ahimelech and asks him to help him out. This is what lying always does. Lying fundamentally can be regarded or defined this way. Lying is saying, I just don't believe in the promises of God. That's why we lie. We lie because we do not trust God. We do not trust God to tell the truth. We do not trust God to make it, even if we're endangered, we don't trust God to tell the truth. So we lie. Lying is a form of control. It's a form of manipulation. David is now broadening the base of his lies because he has lost hope. And when you lose hope, friends, you lose. He certainly wondered at all that God had promised him. I am sure he wondered if he was handling his situation as a believer should. Do you ever feel that way? As though the promises of God are shallow? Have you ever questioned his love in particular for you? Especially when the dealings in your life clash with his love? How can a God who loves me this much allow me to be hurt this bad? You ever been where David is? Sometimes do you feel as though the promises of the Bible actually mock you? When you read what God claims about himself and claims about how we should trust him, do you ever read those promises and they seem to mock? You sing songs like, 
He is my hiding place. I will trust in you. And you know, deep down in your spirit, you're not trusting in him and you don't plan to. David is left to a choice. Either I submit to the truth and to the promise that God told me I would not die and that I would be king, or I take matters into my own hands and I control the situation. I lie to Jonathan. I lie to Saul. I manipulate Ahimelech. I I endanger Abiathar. I gather the bread from the temple and I control things. I run for my life and I make sure I'm protected. In fact, David needed two things, food and a weapon. So he concocts a lie. He says, my troops are outside. There were no troops. He had no troops. He was alone, as we often find ourselves. He was by himself. He was holding tight to control and manipulation. So he tells Ahimelech, I need the bread for my troops. What he really needed the bread for was his planned escape. He says, and I need a weapon. I lost mine. Interesting, 1 Samuel chapter 21, the soap opera gets even better. 1 Samuel 21 verse 7 says, now one of Saul's servants was there that day. I call him the snitch. Doag the Edomite was the snitch. You can almost see him hiding in the bushes. He's there while this little exchange is going on. Satan always will have his demons close by when we are about to sin. And when we don't tell the truth, Satan will. He'll shout a lie from the housetops and teach others that it is the truth. And here is David. And he's about to lie again. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doag, the Edomite. Don't brush over that detained before the Lord thing. That's an interesting phrase. It seems as though God desired this man to be there. He's about to unmask David's lie. Verse 8, David asked Ahimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. I had to leave quickly. I forgot my sword. I'm on king's business here. You see what he's doing? He's lying through his teeth. The priest replied, well, the only sword I got here is the sword of Goliath, the giant that you killed in the Valley of Elam. You would think at that point a light bulb would have gone on in David's mind. You would think at that point from the mouth of Ahimelech that when he said that to David, David would have clicked on the light bulb and said, oh my, wait a minute, what am I doing here? What's going on? By the power of God, I killed the giant. Now I'm standing here lying. He says, if you want to take it, there is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. But David, there is a sword like it. There is a sword much more powerful than it is. A slingshot armed by the faith of a shepherd boy and by the power of an awesome God. You see, David, you've lost your spiritual compass. You have a severe case of spiritual amnesia. 
You not only have forgotten the promises of God, but you have forgotten the faithfulness of God with which he so graciously has delivered you. David is about to do the unthinkable. After all of this, he's lost his friend Jonathan. He's lost his marriage. He endangers the life of the high priest. He steals the bread. He lies about getting the sword. He does not trust God. He plays the madman, the unthinkable. He goes to the camp of the enemy to get comfort. If this is the way these Christians are going to treat me, I should just go ahead where the enemies are. I'll find more comfort in the world than I find in my church. You ever think that way? I'll just go and sell out. When he gets there, he realizes he's in big trouble. So he concocts another scheme. He's now going to play the madman. He's now going to scratch at the door like a dog and foam at the mouth so that no one will touch him, so that others will think he's not a threat, that he's just lost his mind. You see, friends, this is where we choose independence to accountability. Akish is Goliath's king. David is now at the height of spiritual insanity. This is where we actually prefer the company of the unbeliever and his acceptance of us more than we do the values of the church, the fellowship of the body, and the fellowship of the spirit. Even Akish knows this is abnormal behavior, and he wants to have nothing to do with him. So once again, David runs for his life, and all of it has been perpetuated by deceit and lies. It was after his escape from Gath that he comes like Osama bin Laden to a cave out in the wilderness in a place called Adullam. It was there David wrote the 34th Psalm. What lessons did he learn by pretending madness? You see, the stage is now set for this man after God's own heart to unpack his pain and to allow us a glimpse into the miraculous recovery of lost faith. By the way, if you take a little glimpse into what happens at the end of this episode, you see in Psalm 34, God's mercy at its best. All of the disenfranchised in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. All of the poor, all of the disenfranchised, all of the distressed came to him there. About 400 men were with him. In spite of what David did, in spite of the lies, in spite of the deceit, in spite of the spiritual amnesia, God would raise up an army for David, the 400 mighty warriors of faith that formed the core of David's massive army that he would soon develop. But something happened between 1 Samuel 21.1 and 1 Samuel 21.2. Because you see, in 1 Samuel 22.1, it says David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. But then it tells us his brothers came to him and the mighty army was formed. Something happened between those two events. While David was in the cave and before his men came to him, 
David wrote Psalm 34. You see, David wasn't going to receive that army until he recovered from his amnesia, until he could trust in the blessings of God again. You ever been there? You know where it begins? You know where the recovery begins? Where it began with David. Now to Psalm 34, take a look at it. It says, of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. By the way, this is an alphabetical psalm. Each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, save one, so that it could be memorized and sung. You see, the lessons to be taught to children was important. And this psalm was to be taught to the kids. It was to be learned. This is the way out. This is how the blessings are restored. This is how you wrestle with God. This is where it begins. And the first place is to worship. That's where you begin. When you've developed spiritual amnesia, when you've become blind, when you can't hear anymore, when the voice of God seems to be afar off, when you don't hear the blessings being poured out upon you, you don't see them anymore, and God seems to be a million miles away, when you're in that dark tunnel, when you're, when you're funneling your way down into that valley of despair, the first place you need to go is to worship. He says, I will extol the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. That's the best worship, by the way. When you're down here, wallowing in the muck and mire, the best thing you can do at that point is to begin to praise God. Notice he says at all times. Literally, it means under all conditions. Adverse conditions and good conditions. We need to learn how to praise God when things are going well. And we need to learn to praise God when things are going not so well. And by the way, at both extremes, we lose the worship of God. When things are going well, we don't think we need him anymore. When things are going bad, we think he's abandoned us. So we don't bother to worship him when things are going well, and we don't bother to worship him when things are going bad. David says, I will extol the Lord under all those conditions. My soul, that means his emotions. That's the word for emo the seat of affection, the seat of emotions. My soul, I will praise him with my emotions. I don't know how some of us can sing some of the songs we sing. I don't know how some of us can worship the way we worship. We've got pasty faces on. We look like we're dead. We listen to preaching like we're dead. We worship like we're dead. We stand there and we sing the same old rote mechanical words as though we're dead. I will trust him. Do you know what you're singing when you say that? Do you understand the words that you're singing? Does it make your heart flutter a little bit when you think to yourself, I will surrender all? Do you know what you might be setting yourself up for? God holding you at your word. God's saying, this week, I'm going to hold you to that. We listen to preaching, we worship, but we have no emotion. We're afraid to say amen. I, don't tell, I can't tell you how many people have said, you know, and by the way, this is not some sort of advocacy for raising your hands. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I can't tell you how many of you folks have come to us and you've said, you know, when we were singing that song, I just wanted to raise my hands. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? 
And inevitably, we hear this. Well, I was afraid somebody might think, who cares what somebody beside you is going to think? You know, when you want to worship God and you want those emotions to come out, as long as there is decency and order where we don't draw attention to ourselves because that would be counterproductive, let it rip. Let it rip. I know there are times I sit here, I can't sing the songs. I look at the words. The mighty fortress is our God. You know what I remember? I remember singing that song right after our son Mark was killed. I, I remember singing that song right after he was killed. We sat right here in church. That song speaks of even death having no victory. That our God is a mighty force. You can't sing that song. You cannot sing that song and not get a chill up and down your spine. If you don't get a chill up and down your spine, I have to wonder whether or not you truly understand the fact that God is a mighty fortress. The emotions must cry out. He says, my soul will boast in the Lord. I want everybody to know it. I don't care what the guy next to me thinks. I want everybody to know my soul is praising my God. Then he says this, let the afflicted hear and rejoice. That word afflicted, Martin Luther translated miserable. Anybody here miserable this morning? Well, ask your wife. Maybe she'll answer that for you. Ask your mother or your father or your son or your daughter. Ask the guy next to you. He says, let the miserable hear and rejoice. Other translators use the word humbled. Not humble, humbled. People who have been humbled become humble. But the humbling process is something that comes out from outside of them. Those who are humbled are people who are able to see God's miraculous power unleashed. And when we see it unleashed in another, we rejoice and we celebrate. And you know something? Whenever I see somebody rejoicing in the deliverance God has given them, I'm blessed. Whenever I see somebody who's afflicted come out of the affliction blessed, I'm blessed. That's why he says in verse 3, glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There is nothing greater than to share in the victories of another. When God delivers you, I am blessed. When God blesses me, you ought to be blessed. We rejoice in the blessings of God's power at work in another. We have to share those. Otherwise, there's no joy in it. It's like that old joke that goes around about the pastor who took off church on Sunday morning. Nobody knew where he was. He was out on the golf course. And he shoots a hole in one. But there was nobody there to see it. And he couldn't tell anybody that he shot it because he was out on the golf course where he shouldn't have been. Uh, this past week, we were vacationing as a family together. Our whole gang was there, everybody. And we have a new baby in our family. Little Caleb is, what, three months old? And you know, a three-month-old baby will sit there and smile at you. He gets, you know, his face bobbles around, and then suddenly he sees you and he starts smiling. Like, you know, that's an interesting person I'm looking at. Well, I had him all by myself in the room upstairs. 
And I had him on my lap, and he was smiling at me. And it gives you just a thrill. Then all of a sudden, I made a quick gesture, like a peekaboo gesture. And he started giggling. I mean, belly laugh. He had never belly laughed before. And I'm, I'm doing it again. He belly laughs again. I look around, nobody's there. Nobody's there. I'm saying, please, somebody come up here. Somebody see this. This baby's belly laughing. Nobody came up. Finally, his mother comes up the stairs. I said, Laura, watch this. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. The point being, when something is blessing you, you want to share it with other people. You want somebody else to be blessed. I attended a conference years ago as a young pastor. Big conference in a church that uh, was really blessing me. Friday night I was there, got my socks blessed off. Saturday morning, got my socks blessed off. Saturday afternoon, I called my wife. She was home watching little children, four of them. I said, you got to get down here. Six-hour drive. I said, you got to get down here. She says, why? I said, I can't take these blessings all by myself. You need to be here. She says, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I don't know. Do it. But get here. You got to get here. And she did. She figured out something to do with the kids and came down. Why? Because I wanted the blessings to be shared with people I love. This is what David says. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. After all, we complain together, don't we? Why not rejoice together? Whenever God does some amazing work in my life, I want to tell somebody. I want to share it. I want to glorify God with someone. And so ought you. See, that's where it begins for David. Now his amnesia is starting to dissipate. He begins to worship. Then look at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. King James Version says, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And you know his fears were great. Yet the Lord in whose hands is the king's heart made Achish indifferent to David so that he drove David away. God didn't want David there, so he changed Achish's heart to drive David away because God had different plans for David. You know, you cannot depend on past mercies so much that you forget God plans new ones every day. You can't just depend on what God used to do. Because my Bible teaches me that fresh are his blessings and renewed every day. That every day God plans to do something different. Prayer and worship beats finesse and control every time. It's when we do this and when we yield to God and say, God, I'm not going to finesse you anymore. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to control. I'm going to bow. I'm going to yield that God does his best work. His best miracle works in us. David says, I sought the Lord. I cried out to the Lord. You'll see what he says later. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. John Calvin, by the way, put all of these verses in the future tense. He translated it this way. Those who will look to him will be radiant and their faces will never be covered with shame. Jonathan Edwards noted the imperative when he says the verse is translated, look to him. It's a command. Be radiant. Never cover your face with shame. 
You see, David is not merely speaking of his own deliverance, but also of others who will look to him. What do we expect? What can we expect when we look to him? Radiance. Not misery. Radiance. Sunshine. Joy. My favorite verse of all is verse 6. This will be our last verse for this part of the study. This. I put my name in there. This. Poor man cried. That word poor is translated in Psalm 912, humble. In Psalm 1827, afflicted. In Proverbs 324, 34, lowly. In Psalm 1827, needy. In Proverbs 31:20, needy. I think you catch the spirit of it. This poor, humbled, afflicted, lowly, needy man cried. Did you catch the spirit of that word? That's where faith prayers must begin with a proper view of who you are and what your condition is. Those who have spiritual amnesia, they lose their spiritual compass. And maybe even their minds must take a long, hard look, they must, into the mirror and see what manipulation and control has caused them to refuse to release themselves to God. They must call out to the Lord. They must cry out to the Lord. That verb, that word there, by the way, is to cry out fervently. You want to bring down the blessing of God? Cry out fervently. Have you ever wrestled with God? I mean, really wrestled with God. Have you ever been in such despair, such heartache, such brokenness, such a dungeon that you cry out to God and you say, God, I can't let you go until you speak to me. Can we truly cry down blessings? Let me close with this. We'll pick this psalm up next week. This past week, we were on vacation. Everybody was enjoying themselves. Our whole family, our 10 grandchildren, 10 and a half, we're all there. We were just having just a great, great time together. I even went golfing with my wife, who is a witness, and I shot a 77. It doesn't get any better than that. And none of you golfers, none of you golfers, I did not cheat. <laughs> I felt good. Came home. All of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, like I've never experienced before, short of when we lost our son, Mark. A despair came over me like you would not believe. It got bad. It just got worse and worse and worse, and I didn't know why. I just felt like my faith was disappearing. I felt like the promises of God mocked. My wife even came to me and said, did I do something wrong? She thought I was angry with her. I said, no, I don't know what's going on here. I've just lost it. And it went on and on. The kids noticed it. 
And I felt like the best thing I could do was just get away from everybody. And I went out onto the deck by myself. And the more I looked up at the stars, the more worthless I felt. How could a God who is that big care a lick about me? And I begged him. I cried out to him like I've never cried to him before. Literally, my eyes were swollen shut. I said, Lord, I don't understand this. What happened? Show me something. Not for your sake, but for my sake. Not to prove yourself, but to sustain my weakness. Show me something. And I sat there on that deck for hours, and I begged God. And then an absolutely amazing thing happened. You know what happened? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Like heaven was silent. I went to bed that night angry. Angry at myself. Angry at my God. Angry that he didn't speak to me. And I knew I was working through this particular psalm. And I said, you know, God, you promised me. In verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You didn't do that, Lord. And I went to bed. You know what the real miracle is? I didn't see any bolts of lightning. The clouds didn't rumble. No stars fell from the heavens. No voice from heaven. The next morning, I woke up, and the despair was gone. I don't know what happened. It was gone. And then I sat down, and I opened my Bible to Psalm 34 to prepare this message. And it's like a light bulb went on. Before I could understand David's despair in the cave, I had to understand it from experience so that what happens here filtered in my life can help prepare you and yours. I don't think David could get any lower than he was in that cave. And I don't think I could get any lower than I was on that deck. But in both cases and in your case, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his troubles. He didn't do it my way, but he did it. You have spiritual amnesia this morning? You're sitting in a cave? Deliverance begins when you worship. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.